You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I didn't know who Jay Shetty was until last week. Had to look him up. Turns out he is an award-winning host, a storyteller, and a viral content creator. I didn't know any of that. And I probably should know who he is, I guess, because he's got 2.3 million followers on Instagram, and I've only got a measly 104,000 followers on Instagram. And the way this social media pecking order is supposed to work, the way the world is supposed to be ordered, those of us with fewer followers are supposed to know the names, at least of them, with more followers. Anyway, I found out about award-winning host, storyteller, and content creator Jay Shetty after he posted something to his 2.3 million followers on Instagram, something that prompted dozens of his followers to tag me in. It wasn't a photo. It was an inspirational or motivational quote. Here's what Jay Shetty had to say. A psychology professor said, if you're in love with someone, you won't be interested in someone else. If you are, then you aren't in love. I think people need to see this. Huh. I think Jay Shetty needs to add bullshit peddler to his bio. Here's what people need to know. This notion that if you are in love with someone, you won't ever be interested, not even interested in anyone else. That's a lie. It's a dangerous lie. It's a lie that destroys relationships. Happily partnered people in loving relationships can develop interests or crushes on others. They can even catch feelings for others. And if you wait it out, not a problem. But if someone believes a fleeting crush on or interest in another person means they aren't in love with their current partner anymore, they may end a relationship that doesn't need to end, a relationship that shouldn't have ended, a relationship that they will one day regret ending. And if someone who believes this dumb fucking lie realizes that their partner has a fleeting crush on someone else, and they believe that love is some sort of zero-sum game and that their partner's interest in someone else, this crush on a waiter they're never going to see again means their partner doesn't love them anymore. That person, that dumb, misled person, perhaps a person who follows award-winning host, storyteller, content creator, and bullshit peddler Jay Shetty on Instagram, might conclude that their partner doesn't love them anymore and end a relationship that doesn't need to end, a relationship that shouldn't have ended, a relationship they will one day regret ending. And to be clear, I'm not being a defensive, non-monogamy guy here. This dumb fucking lie Jay Shetty is pushing, it doesn't destroy the relationships of those of us in open and ethically non-monogamous relationships. It destroys the relationships of people in monogamous relationships. Not all of them, just the dumb ones. The kind of dummies who think that an actual psychology professor ever said something so fucking stupid. The kind of dummies who followed Jay Shetty, bullshit peddler, on Instagram. And if you'll indulge me a quick word about a headline you all may have seen, a second man has been, quote, cured of HIV. Donald Trump, being Donald Trump, attempted to take credit for this because, of course, he did. But an important note, we are a long way from any sort of effective, scalable cure for HIV. Both men who've been cured also had cancer and both underwent bone marrow transplants. Since bone marrow transplants are risky, complicated, and not always successful, we have to regard this treatment, cancer in a bone marrow transplant, 
not as a universally applicable cure for HIV, but as something that in two cases resulted in two men being cured of HIV, almost as a side effect. Because in both cases, what was being treated with the bone marrow transplant was the cancer, not the HIV. It's promising. Anything that points in the direction of a cure, I am for. But I don't want people out there to pin too many hopes on the quote-unquote second man cured of HIV. And now a quick programming note. We're going to call this the potentially triggering show. This is your trigger warning, I guess, for this show. Some tough stuff comes up on this episode of the Savage Lovecast. Child molestation, pedophilia, snuff films, doggity style rears its ugly ass again. We generally don't issue trigger warnings because sex is complicated and shit can get dark and people don't call into sex and relationship advice shows to share their success stories. They call in to share their troubles. And it's not always easy to predict what might trigger an individual listener. So we typically haven't in the past offered trigger warnings before shows. But this show is an exception because some of the stuff that comes up on this week's show is pretty tough. So if you're not in the right place to listen to calls that touch on child molestation, pedophilia, snuff films, and doggity style, hey, you could check out on purpose Jay Shetty's podcast this week instead. All right, coming up on this week's Lovecast on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, some of them very disturbing, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much Lovecast and no ads when you subscribe. A trans man joins us to answer trans questions and speak, of course, as all individual trans men do on behalf of all trans men everywhere for all time. That coming up on the Magnum. Hi, Dan. I mean, I just wanted to know your opinion about orgasm ratio. So I have this girlfriend I've been intimate with for, you know, year and a half or so, but I always bring her to orgasm multiple times when we have sex. I finish and then she still wants another orgasm. What are your opinions about this? I'm not familiar with the phrase orgasm ratio. You hear often about the orgasm gap. In the 2009 National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, almost 2,000 adults between 18 and 59 were asked about their most recent sexual encounter. And 91% of the guys asked came in their last sexual encounter, but only 64% of the women in their last sexual encounter came. Now, we don't want to put too much emphasis on orgasms. You can have a wonderful and fulfilling sexual encounter and not come. But if 91% of the men are coming, last time they had a sexual encounter, but only 64% of the women who had sex with those men came during their last sexual encounter, we can safely intuit, I believe. We can infer that a large chunk of those women who didn't come might have liked to have come, but didn't. That's the orgasm gap. People talk about it. People talk about how to close it. You know where the orgasm gap doesn't exist? You know how to close it? Be a lesbian. There's no orgasm gap in lesbian land. When two women get together, somehow they magically manage to both get off. Go figure. Your question, your problem really isn't a problem. And the solution is easy. If after you finish, after you come, she'd like to keep coming, you're finishing too soon. Make her come a couple of times. Make her come three or four times before you blow your sad and pathetic, lonely, solo male orgasm. That is the curse, but also kind of the benefit of dudedom. You know when you're done? You can use a word like finished. A woman is possibly never done. 
The more orgasms a woman has, the more orgasms a woman can have. A woman is potentially sexually insatiable. But dudes, we have one, most of us. There are some dudes out there with a mutation who are multi-orgasmic, but they are exceedingly rare. Slept with a lot of dudes, only slept with one dude like that. If you are not a dude like that, you're going to want to hold your orgasm back until your partner, particularly if your partner is a woman, is satisfied until she is finished and then you finish. That is the patently obvious solution to your non-problem. G'day, Dan. 31-year-old cis gay guy from Australia here. I've got a question for you about fucking my boyfriend. Our sex life is amazing. We have off-the-charts chemistry and we just seem to fit together perfectly well, except for when we try for doggy style. When we try that, I can get about 90% of the way in, but then it just seems like my dick hits a wall inside of him, which causes him pain, and I need to stop straight away. It is possible to continue, but I then just need to be really slow and deliberate about my strokes in order to not cause him any more pain. And I'm happy to do that, but it is kind of the opposite of what we both enjoy about doggy style, which is that free, unrestricted, just powerful humping. My dick's pretty big, but honestly nothing to write home about. And I've seen much bigger penises and objects go into rectums in porn all the time. This is the only position that causes these issues. If he's riding on top of me or we're doing missionary, the angles are just different and it's fine. Now, our relationship is open. So if I'm desperate to do this kind of humping, I'm free to go out and find it. But honestly, I'd prefer to be able to do it with the man that I love. So what can you recommend here, Dan? Are there any kind of pro-varsity Ivy League level kegels he can practice that might help? Or am I just going to have to go in for dick shortening surgery? Saying I've seen people do it like this in porn is kind of like saying I've seen people fly through the air at the circus. It's not a standard what you've seen people do at the circus or what you've seen people do at porn, by which you should measure what you're able to do in regular life. Most regular people who aren't in the circus can't fly through the air, and most regular people who aren't the you know, circus performers and porn can't get those giant toys in their ass without hurting themselves. So don't look at your boyfriend and don't look at this one sex act, doggity style, that you guys can't quite do and think that there's something wrong here or there's even a solution to, quote unquote, this problem. This is just a position that because of the angle of your dick and the angles of his insides doesn't work for you guys. So when it comes to anal sex within your relationship – Doggity style is off the menu. Now, there are some toys out there that you could get that might help that basically shorten your dick. Kind of think of a big, fat, flared cock ring that you don't wear behind your balls. You just wear at the bottom of your shaft that would essentially shorten your cock, make it impossible for you to get the whole thing in there. And you could wear one of those toys and essentially shorten your dick. And then maybe you can pound his ass with the abandon that you would like to pound his ass with when you're doing doggy style sex. That might work. But you know what also works? All the other positions that you guys have anal sex in, where it works, where the angles all align in such a way that you're able to be all the way in, all the way out, all the way back in, and he's able to enjoy the pounding that you're giving him in comfort. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the guy I just started dating. It's been a few months now, and uh, things are going pretty well. I would have said a few months ago they were going even better when we had just started seeing each other, but um, he is really sensitive, 
which isn't a bad thing at all. I told him numerous times that I liked how open he was emotionally and that he was able to communicate with me because it's something I haven't had in my previous relationships. But um, lately, it's gotten really, really intense to the point where we can't actually communicate anymore because he gets so overwhelmed and he often cries when we're just having a normal conversation. Um, so it's gotten to a point where it honestly is turning me off um, and it makes me feel really bad because I, I am happy he feels comfortable enough to be open with me, but it's gotten to a point where I'm not so into the relationship anymore. It's lacking a sort of like confidence that I used to find sexy. Uh, so I don't really know what to do about this. I've tried vocalizing it, but I don't want to emasculate him in any way or make him feel bad for being emotional. But it's gotten to a point where uh, we can't really talk because I'm afraid I'm going to make him cry and that makes me uncomfortable. And then I'm not really in the mood to have any sort of intimacy afterwards because I feel like I'm the one carrying the brunt of the communication in the relationship. Again, it's super new and I feel like maybe this is just the sign that I should walk away but there are certain things that really work for me about him. So just wondering what your advice is on that. It's super new, but sounds super annoying. And you have my permission, you have my blessing to terminate this relationship, to end it. You're in the early, very early stages of dating this person. And he has a personality trait that you probably can't reach into his motherboard and tear out of him. And this personality trait that he weeps easily and often, so much so that you're afraid to converse with him lest you set him off. And this personality trait makes you not want to fuck him. So yeah, that is a fatal flaw. You've discovered early in the dating process a disqualifying character trait. And you are allowed, for that reason and that reason only, to pull the plug. And yeah, we all want people who are in touch with their emotions, who can access them, but we don't want to be with someone who's just a rolling, tumbling, weeping mess at all times. We, it's impossible to date someone or, or be partner with someone who's kind of a box of nitroglycerin. And usually when I use that phrase, they're you know, explosive and dangerous. But sometimes you know, someone is just so easily set off that you're always on tenterhooks around them. You can never be confident or at ease around them for fear that you are going to say the wrong thing and make them – burst into tears. And I guess bursting into tears is preferable to flying off into a rage. But the way that can make you feel, that hesitancy, that insecurity, you're not in the same danger that somebody with a violently ragey partner is, but you're also never at ease in the same way that someone with a violently ragey partner is. And you're allowed to leave that person for making you feel uncomfortable and awkward and insecure at all times because you never know when they're going to burst into tears because you said, what's for dinner? The wrong way. So, yeah, go. You have my permission to leave. You have my permission to give this dude something real to cry about. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old female living in the Southeast. I was molested by my uncle when I was about six years old, and it really messed me up. And I was suicidal for a long time, but I've gone to therapy and things are a lot better now. The thing is, is I feel like I'm keeping a secret because no one in, um, besides my sister and my family knows. And I guess what I'm feeling is I'm going to be end up being 45 years old, wishing I had told my parents, but it's too late. And feeling like, why the fuck am I still thinking about something that happened to me when I was just a kid? And it's really not that big of a deal and I should just get over it. Most of the time I feel fine and um, I don't feel like I need to tell them, but 
Some days it feels like something I should say, and sometimes they say stuff that's really kind of triggering. And I wish that they just like knew in those moments. Basically, I don't want them to feel guilty, and I don't want to destroy the already strained relationship that my mom has with her sister. And I also have a fear that they will think that I'm making it up, and that would be really hurtful. But when I hear them make a comment about how I used to kick and punch in my sleep, or how I sit funny, it pisses me off because I know I was having nightmares about getting raped, and I feel really uncomfortable sitting like a normal person because my groin feels exposed. And my boyfriend says I shouldn't tell them if it's just because I want them to avoid my triggers. And honestly, I think that might be the reason at the end of the day. So Dan, what should I do? Should I tell them or keep it to myself? And if I should tell them, how should I do it? There are definitely risks in telling your parents about what your uncle did to you. Your parents could react in a way that hurts you, that traumatizes you. And their reaction, if it is inadequate or insensitive or unloving, could really harm your relationship with your parents. But keeping the secret, bearing this burden, is harming your relationship with your parents. So telling them carries the risk of harming or further harming your relationship with your parents, which is already harmed. But there's also in telling your parents a chance that they will come through, maybe not instantaneously, maybe not their first reaction, but they may come through for you in a way that heals your relationship with your parents, brings you closer together with your parents. And I think you need to tell them because you want to tell them. You wouldn't be calling. You wouldn't sound so in pain at the burden of keeping this secret if you didn't want to tell them, if you didn't need to tell them. So how do you tell them? Well, I hope you have a good therapist. I hope you have a counselor that you've worked with to help process your own trauma. And I think you should bring that person in. I think you should go see that person again. If you stop seeing that person, schedule a few appointments to discuss at greater length why you want to tell your parents, why you need to tell your parents now. And then when you're ready to tell your parents, have them come in for a counseling session with you. So you have someone there to facilitate that conversation and to be your advocate. And also then you won't be outnumbered in that conversation. It won't be you and your parents, one against two. It will be you and your ally, your therapist, your counselor, having this conversation with your parents about what happened to you, what was done to you by this relative, and why you kicked in your sleep, and why you sit in a certain way to this day because of what that man did to you when you were a child. And that man who raped you, your uncle, needs to be held accountable. And often in families, abusers and and sexual predators violate multiple family members. They get away with it because people are afraid to tell their relatives what happened to them because they don't expect that they will receive the support that they need, that they deserve, and then will be further traumatized by the lack of that support. Now, this is not to put on survivors of sexual trauma the responsibility to tell everyone in their families, even if that risks further traumatizing them. But this is a dynamic. This is often how it plays out. A person gets away with it, and then they get away with it again. Sometimes the person who is traumatized, often the person who is traumatized, speaks up says something, and then they are cut out of the family. The family rallies around the abuser 
because they don't want to believe that someone that they loved was capable of doing this. And they will blame the person who spoke up for dividing the family. And yeah, that's a risk you run when you speak up, when you tell relatives and you tell parents that a grandparent or a brother or a sister or an aunt abused you sexually. But there are risks in not opening up. And I think that you can see them now because holding the secret inside is eating you up and it is harming your relationship with your parents. So for fear that you might harm your relationship with your parents, if you tell them, your relationship with your parents is being harmed because you haven't told them. So make that appointment with your counselor and game this out. Talk it out with your counselor and then bring your parents in when you're ready to tell them and have your counselor there as your advocate and ally to help you have that difficult conversation with mom and dad. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a late 20s uh, gay man calling from the West Coast. And I have a little bit of a question about ethics with hooking up. Um, I think you've talked about this a bit on the show before. I've um, heard you talk about it. But basically, I've found myself in a situation where I have been hooking up with a few guys who are in quote-unquote open relationships. And they tell me that uh, certain things are permissible before we do it. And then afterward, on occasion, they feel like, oh, you know, wish we hadn't done that or um, like we were drunk when we did it. And then I have the experience of, since I'm also friends with their partners, of being like a bit uncomfortable with the situation. So I think for me personally, I'm I'm not so much in favor of, of doing it again. But my question comes to as a general question, I think for myself and for listeners out there is, if you are clearing it with the person before and who's in an open relationship, what obligation do you have as a person outside the relationship to investigate what their arrangement is? Is it something that's my business or the person's business or is it not? So what responsibility does a person have when they're hit on by someone they know to be partnered or they know to be married And that person says, the person doing the hitting tells the other person, the person whose responsibility we're discussing, that they're in an open relationship. What obligation do you have when someone hits on you who's partnered or married and tells you that they're in an open relationship? Well, I think you have an obligation to ask if that's true, particularly if you don't want to be put in an awkward situation, particularly if both halves of that couple are in your social sphere. You don't want to be put in an awkward position. You don't want to be... The other man, you don't want to be someone who slept with somebody else's boyfriend or husband behind somebody's back because then you have a secret to keep. And when it comes out, as it almost always does, if it was indeed cheating, a lot of the anger in a situation like that gets directed not at the partner who cheated, but at the person with whom they cheated. And you don't want to have to bear the brunt of somebody's anger because his husband or boyfriend cheated on him with you. And a lot of transference goes on there. A lot of people take all of their anger at their partner and make a little ball out of it and throw it at the person that their partner cheated on them with. Because to be angry with the person who deserves the lion's share, most if not all of the anger, can risk the relationship, can imperil the relationship. And if you're not in a position to leave or leaving would be incredibly complicated, sometimes it's easier to transfer all that anger onto the person that your partner cheated on you with rather than holding your partner accountable. And who wants to be in that position? No one. So you say to somebody that you know to be partnered who hits on you, so it's an open relationship for real, 
Can I ask your partner about that? Can I ask your boyfriend about that? Now, in most cases, people have either a DADT or they don't necessarily want to know, like in real time, who their partners might be sleeping with. And the agreement is, you know, we have an open relationship. You do what you want. I do what I want. But let's not torment each other moment to moment with the outside sexual contacts, even if we sometimes will, you know, open up about them and tell each other about them and, and share our adventures with each other. You know, being told that your partner's getting laid right now isn't something that most people in an open relationship necessarily want to hear, even if they don't have a DADT, even if they have an honest open relationship that involves, you know, a high degree of disclosure. They may not want to hear in the moment. So it's difficult and you have to weigh your own desire to sleep with somebody against your capacity for risk. That's a difficult call to make. Now, when it comes to people in your social sphere, you often know for a fact whether that relationship is open or closed. And you can fuck partnered people with a high degree of confidence. But if somebody hits on you and you don't know whether their relationship is open or closed and you've been burned in the past because people lied to you, then you might want to opt for not sleeping with people unless you know for sure whether their relationship is open or closed so that you don't run the risk of being the other man that the wronged boyfriend or husband is furious with. Where it gets tricky is when people are in actual DADTs, where I am allowed to have sex with other people, but my partner doesn't want to know about it. Then you just have to assess the person standing in front of you. You have to trust your gut. You have to use your best judgment and determine if they're telling the truth or not. Also then having to factor in that some people are really good liars. You might wind up in bed then with somebody who lied to you about being in a DADT and it could all blow the fuck up. Sounds like it's blown the fuck up on you a couple of times. So going forward, you might not want to sleep with DADTers. You might want to just, if you are occasionally tempted to sleep with somebody who's partnered, only sleep with partnered people that you know for damn sure are in actual, ethical, non-monogamous relationships. Hi, Dan. This is an early 30s male living in the Midwest. I have been married for over 10 years to my wife, and uh, we have a very good sex life, uh, very consistent. We're both GGG, but I will say 99% of the time it's very vanilla, which does not bother me, doesn't bother her. Um, it's what we want. It's what works for us. I am probably a bit more adventurous than she is. And the only, you know, kind of question that I've been starting to wonder about is it seems like every time we try something a little bit new, she really enjoys it, which is awesome. But she's never really up for trying something. It, it has to be like these special situations or just maybe I suggested enough times that eventually she says, yes, I was thinking about maybe surprising her specifically around introducing toys of some sort, especially a vibrator and kind of just bringing that into the equation. But I know if I ask her, she will kind of be taken aback and she won't want to do that, both spending money on it. Um, also, I think just the idea of doing anything that's outside the realm of vanilla is just kind of, kind of freaks her out. But then, like I said, once we kind of get into something, she always enjoys it. Um, there's never, nothing has ever happened in the bedroom that she didn't come to love, I will say. Uh, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, do I need to have consent? Do I need to have her permission? Do I need to, you know, talk this through with her or is it okay just to kind of surprise her with this? First things first, 
vibrators are vanilla. There is nothing kinky about a vibrator. It's a tool. It's a tool a lot of women need to become orgasmic or to have orgasms. And really, I think they are standard issue. Everybody should have one, at least one, laying around. Consent only comes into play here if you're going to force her to use a vibrator, which you are not talking about doing. You're talking about gifting her a vibrator, buying her a vibrator and presenting it to her does not obligate her if she does not wish to use it at that moment to use that vibrator at that moment. Having it in the house, knowing it's in the house, knowing that you got it for her and gave it to her, that the money's already been spent, maybe she will after the initial, oh, I don't want to, how could you do this? Yuck, I never really thought about a vibrator. She'll begin to turn it over in her head and she may decide at a later date to use that vibrator. So long as you aren't coercing her, so long as you aren't pressuring her, so long as you aren't bringing the vibrator up constantly, so long as you're not telling her that your feelings are really hurt, that she hasn't used the vibrator yet, and asking her what's wrong with her, that she won't use a vibrator when Dan Savage said vibrators are vanilla, so long as you aren't doing any of that, you aren't violating her consent. You're getting her a prezi. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to address the dynamic you describe in this relationship where she is vanilla and inhibited and less kinky than you are. And every time you guys have a little sexual breakthrough, every time she steps outside her comfort zone and does something that you wanted to do and you suggested and maybe she wasn't into it first, but then she came around on and now she really likes and makes her come like crazy. Well, you've described kind of parallels those relationships that we're all familiar with where an introvert marries an extrovert and the introvert, you know, Pick the extrovert because they want to be drawn out of their shell, because they want to be more social, because they admire that in their partner and rely on their partner to a great extent to make their social life happen. And so that they don't sit at home alone isolating themselves because they're with somebody who doesn't want to be isolated and therefore they can't themselves be isolated. I'm in that kind of relation. I'm a terrible introvert. Terry is an extrovert bordering on an exhibitionist, and I like that about him. I need that in my relationship. The danger is when you try to talk about this in the context of a sexual relationship, we don't want to say or do anything that props up rape culture or say or do anything that reinforces this pernicious horseshit in the culture and in the sex culture where – women wind up feeling coerced and pressured into doing things that they don't want to do. Sometimes GGG gets used that way. I hear from women who felt coerced or pressured because they had GGG thrown in their faces. Good giving in game. What we should be for our partners. Good in bed. Giving sometimes a pleasure without an expectation of an immediate return, but with immediate return, reciprocity should be built into every sexual relationship and game for anything within reason. And the reasons are yours and yours alone. If something seems unreasonable to you, if it's not a sex act that you could or would ever enjoy, that's reason enough. And somebody coming at you again and again and again is being unreasonable if they're pressuring to do something you've already ruled out for reasons of your own. All that said, there are sexual introverts who seek out and partner with sexual extroverts because they want to be drawn out of their shell sexually. You want to make sure if you're more sexually extroverted that you aren't pressuring an introvert into doing something. You aren't leveraging their desire to be with you against them to get them to do things sexually that they don't enjoy and regret. 
and know the difference between someone who's more inhibited, who wants to be with somebody less inhibited because they themselves would like to be less inhibited, than being with somebody who isn't inhibited but just has a really much more limited sexual repertoire and more vanilla standard mainstream desires than you and is only doing these things to please you and feels used and degraded by the things that they're doing. And I think somebody who's smart, who has a good emotional IQ and a good sexual IQ can tell the difference. And this relationship doesn't sound like someone who is basically vanilla is doing things that she doesn't want to do. This sounds like the sexual introvert who found the sexual extrovert because she wants to be drawn out of her shell sexually. Presenting that person, the person you know your spouse to be, with a vibrator to draw her out of her shell sexually is a fine and loving and lovely thing to do. Don't force her to use it. Don't incorporate it into a sex act without her consent, without her foreknowledge, without her permission. But give it to her. Present it to her. And if it sits in a shelf and if it sits in a drawer for a year before she remembers that it's there and ask you maybe if you kind of might want to try it now, maybe she's ready, she's been thinking about it. Yahtzee, good for you. Mission accomplished. Hi there, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling with a bit of a, a dating question. So a 32-year-old queer woman from Canada, and I'm on a popular dating app at the moment, and I encountered my very first trans man. And I was interested and intrigued and curious to see if there would be mutual interest, and we matched. And my question is about how to proceed. I'm not from a small town by any means, but I will admit, despite being pretty involved in the queer community in my hometown, that I don't know any trans people. And I'm very weary of being sensitive, but not overly sensitive. Essentially, I want to think about this potential date and interaction. I know we haven't even spoken yet, so I shouldn't get ahead of myself, but I want to know how to respectfully and thoughtfully engage with a trans man uh, in a dating situation, and I don't know where to start. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Jens Chinkwamani, trans, queer, and here to tell you how to live your life, which I thought was my job. Hey, Jens, how are you? Hey, how are you? Uh, really good. Um, I have tapped you. I have brought you in to help tackle this question because you are the trans man who speaks for all trans men everywhere. Is that not the case? Oh, that's correct. I was elected in. Um, sorry if everybody's mad about it if they didn't go out and vote, but that's who I am. <laughs> you are the trans pope. Here we go. So uh, <laughs> somehow this 32-year-old queer woman, sis, who is involved in her queer community has made first contact with a trans guy. First ever. First ever contact with a trans guy wow. on a dating app. Maybe she's socially interacted with trans guys before, but never in a dating context where she was matched, sounds like on Tinder, with a trans guy. And she wants to know how to act, how to proceed as a trans man who speaks for all trans men everywhere, Jens. What do you say? Well, I think some um, appropriate questions to ask a trans man are, what's your name? What do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do for a living? Uh, what's your dog's name? Because they will have a dog. Um, I think you just kind of have to treat them like a normal human being. Uh, the thing that kind of troubled me about this call, honestly, is that 
you uh, trying not to be overly sensitive or her trying not to be overly sensitive is being overly sensitive, but at the same time, not being sensitive at all to the fact that she's othering this trans man's identity. Mm -hmm. This is a new person for you. This is not a new gender. So just treat them like a human. Treat Treat them like a new person. Treat them like any other dude. That's right. Trans guys are dudes. Dudes are trans guys. Trans guys are dudes. But is a trans guy like any other dude? Are there any sort of trans-specific issues that might come up if it's a dating or sex thing as opposed to just a, a mere social interaction? Absolutely. But if we're talking about adults here, I can imagine that she could ask some questions if she needs to as an adult. But on a first date, mm-hmm. I wouldn't imagine y'all are uh, pulling out your genitals at the coffee shop, right? <laughs> or, or talking about exactly what you might like to do with your genitals at the coffee shop, the first date, exactly. that, that first contact is just about establishing mutual attraction, right? Exactly. Um, I, I do have one tip, though, um, that is told to me often um, by both men and women when I'm on a date with them is they'll want to compare me to a woman, so they'll say something like, oh, don't worry, I've been with women before, I know how all the parts work. I would just um, nix that from all the interaction because I'm surprised about how many people say that to me. Yeah, that's not a good thing to say to a trans guy. That would be my guess, my hunch. Yeah. Well, um, I do speak for all trans men, so. (laughs) I got to say, though, I can understand her hesitancy or her, you know, desire to, to do this right because we do seem to live in an era where, and this isn't just about trans guys or, or trans women, but about everybody in LGBTQLIT land where there just is a new dynamic where if you put a foot wrong, if you say the wrong thing, you might get blown up at or dragged if you said that wrong thing or put a foot wrong, not out of malice, but out of ignorance on social media, you'll certainly get dragged. And I do think that that can, you know, for people who are cisgendered, who are interacting with somebody who's trans, this desire not to hurt anyone's feelings is also sort of shot through with the desire not to get dragged or, or attacked or blown up out for saying the wrong thing. Again, not out of malice, but out of ignorance. And people can get really sort of nervous about getting it right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we shouldn't fault the caller for asking the question or for you know having this desire to get it right because she doesn't want to say the wrong thing or hurt anybody's feelings or hurt this guy's feelings. But Right. And I don't want to sound like I am faulting her. I mean, I think that that's um, a very reasonable question. However, I am thinking about this trans person on the dating site. Um, the caller already knows that he's trans. So it sounds like he's out about it to out about it. Exactly. So um, while I understand like asking certain questions or, um, or being afraid to ask certain questions uh, can be a little tricky because yeah, you don't want to be blasted. You don't want to be dragged, but um, maybe it's not the right fit if you really can't talk to somebody. Right. And I, and I do think that you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, those first interactions, like, you know, what do you like? What do I like? Those first kinds of, you know, if it's a date and it's not a date for sex, if it was a date for sex, you might get really explicit right away about what you're into, what they're into, what you want, what, you know, they're able to do for you and vice versa. Uh, But if it's a date, what you establish at first is like, you know, what do you like? Where do you go? Where do you work? What do I do for work? Where are you from? And those conversations aren't necessarily fraught or shouldn't be fraught, mm-hmm. rarely are fraught. And then, you know, if you make out on that first date, if you begin to move toward sex, 
then you're going to have to maybe have a conversation about expectations and wants and desires, but you would have to have that conversation with somebody who is cisgendered. Now, a lot of people in opposite sex relationships avoid that question about what they want, what they don't want, Mm -hmm. what they're into, what they're not into, because PIV is just the default fallback, the default setting for opposite sex, cisgendered sex. It's going to be penis and vagina sex. And, you know, if you're queer, if it's two cis dudes, if it's two cis women, if it's a trans person and a cis person or a trans person, another trans person, you have to have a conversation about what you want and what they want and what you will do and what they can do. But you don't want to put that cart before the horse. You can have that conversation after you establish mutual attraction, which is an easy thing to right. do and an easy conversation to have because you just go out and see if you spark. Right. And they already must be attracted to each other if they matched on whatever you know dating site they're on. So let's role play this just really quickly. Jens, you're a trans man on a date with a cis woman that you met on Tinder. Ideally, what comes out of that cis woman's mouth on that first date? How does it go? I'm a trans man. I'm on a date with someone I met on Tinder, a cis woman. If this is the first date that we're trying to find mutual attraction, I would just like her to treat me like a human. And if she needs to tell me that this is the first time that she's ever dated a trans man, that's okay. I think that because um, I was open on Tinder and I said that I was trans. Um, it's most likely that I'm going to lead those conversations. All right. That's great. Hey, uh, Jens, we have a couple other questions as the trans man who speaks for all trans men everywhere. Can we keep you on the line for these trans questions? Sure. Hi, Dan. This is a 30 year old trans man and I'm getting married in August to a 30 year, a similar age trans woman. And we both have shitty conservative sides of our family. I would love some advice as to how to deal with the shitty conservative sides of our family, as well as the fact that, like, she came out last year in September. I came out, to my family at least, at the beginning of the year. So some of our family, at least for my family, is still in that stage of like, well, maybe I don't want to use your new name, which is annoying and semi-hurtful, but I also think that they're just having their little fit, and I'm like, okay, have your feels. But at the same time, I'm not cool with them being assholes at my wedding. Is there a better graceful way to say, hey, if you don't fully support us, we don't want you at our wedding? So this doesn't seem like a trans-specific question. There are a lot of people out there, trans and not, with shitty conservative families. A lot of people out there who are marrying someone that their families, conservative or not, disapprove of. And a lot of people have to have this kind of conversation with family before their wedding. Like, if you don't support us, don't fucking come. Right. Do you think there are trans-specific issues here at play? You know, not necessarily. I do not think there are trans-specific issues. Um, I mean, besides the fact that the caller was talking about, you know, using the wrong name and the wrong pronouns and things like that, that could be um, really upsetting. Um, However, I did get married uh, about three years ago. And I have to tell you that this was the first time my father ever saw me after I transitioned. Um, The first time he's ever met my friends. And um, he's, he's a biker from the Bronx. I was a little worried. (laughs) And so, um, to be honest with you, I was so busy with, um, getting ready and learning Hebrew, um, (laughs) at the wedding and (laughs) having to do all of this stuff that I barely noticed who was even there. Sorry to everyone who was at my wedding. I barely noticed who was there. And so just a couple things that kind of, um, was really nice is that my wife, uh, had a very awesome uh, bridal party. And one of them kind of self-appointed herself to uh, be a buffer between us and everyone else. So um, 
she was very happy to kind of kick anyone out who was being an asshole or um, put people in check who were being too rowdy, things like that. Uh, perhaps you could find one friend that um, you really trust that can kind of um, be a buffer between you and your family if you really want them to be there. That's a really smart idea, whatever the wedding is, to deputize a couple of people to be the enforcers so that the bride and groom don't have to dirty their hands uh, right. or the groom and groom or the bride and bride oh, are another, enforcing. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to say that the, the caller says something that hints at advice I give where, you know, they've only been out to their families for less than a year and they're getting married less than a year after coming out to their families. And the mm-hmm. caller, he says something about, you know, he's letting them have their fit, letting them have their tantrum. I talk about that a lot. When you come out to your family right. as queer, it sometimes can benefit you and your relationship with them long term just to let them have a fit for you. Let them have a tantrum. Let them say every shitty thing, answer every question. And then after that year is up, you draw a line and say, we're done with the tantrum. Tantrum ends or I'm not going to be in your life anymore, period. Because right. your only leverage, I'm sure people out there can say this with me, your only leverage as an adult is your presence in your family's life, your family of origin's life. If they can't love and respect you, don't be present. You don't have to show right. up to be abused. So, you know, the caller references my advice, but is also marrying and inviting the family, theoretically, to this wedding less than a year after coming out to them. So in what would be their tantrum allowance. Mm-hmm. And there's a risk there. There's a risk they may show up at your wedding and and be assholes. And so I think a little advanced work on them, a little advanced discussion with them about whether they want to come, whether they deserve to come, how they're going to comport themselves if they do come. But you have an absolute right not to invite shitty people to your wedding, just, you know, even if they're related to you, you're not obligated to invite shitty people to your wedding who are going to be assholes to you or your spouse to be or spouse that just became just because they're your relatives. I think that's um, a really good point. I mean, if they are coming out to their family and I assume that they're still in contact with their family, especially since they want to invite them to their wedding. So I think it is really important to, you know, um, sit them down, you know, whatever, whatever that means on the phone or in person and tell them, if you want to come to my wedding, like this is the way it's going to be. I mean, this is your day and it would be really shitty for the family to have their fit on this one day that, you know, might, Mm -hmm. they might not ever get a chance to do again. Um, I have to tell you, I sent out save the dates to a lot of my family and um, only my mother and father showed up, you know, or, and stepfather oh. immediately, but, you know, and I haven't spoken to them since. And that's just kind of, you know, as an adult, as a 35 year old person, I just have to accept that um, I don't have to like the people that I'm related to and they don't have to like me. That must've been painful. I feel that kind of pain. I've been in that same position, a similar position, sent my the birth announcement when my son was born to my grandmother who mailed it back to me. Oh. I never spoke to her again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, we've all been there. That said, you know, I think it was really good that you did send the save the date, even to family that you weren't sure how they would respond because it let you know who they were, let you know that you could stop working on those relationships and stop thinking and caring about those people. Um, right. But sometimes family that you think is, you know, homophobic or transphobic or biphobic, they'll show up at your wedding and it helps them come around. I've talked to people who've had parents who didn't love and support them, who had parents who were homophobic, who then came to their wedding because they mm-hmm. didn't want to nuke that relationship, even if they were still struggling with their homophobia. And seeing all the love, seeing all your friends, seeing other family, being able to effortlessly embrace and accept you really helped them get there themselves. 
that for some family, and, and you know, it's a big risk to say, invite your homophobic family to your wedding. Maybe they'll have an epiphany. But for some mm-hmm. family members, that's where the epiphany comes. Right. Or has come. But it is a risk. What if they come and make a scene? Well, take Jen's advice. Have some enforcers who can drag the people who make a scene out by their ears. Mm-hmm. But maybe they'll show up. And maybe through other people's eyes, they will see you as the whole person that you are, that they haven't been able to see through their own eyes. And that epiphany will come. But what's a wedding without drama? What's a wedding without drama? (laughs) Right? Like sometimes the most memorable ones are the like shit show weddings with a lot of drama. (laughs) And we should lean into the drama just a little bit. So I would encourage you to, you know, I would encourage the, the caller to invite his friends and family and, and for his fiance to invite her friends and family. And then like Jen's like you, Jen's see who shows up, see who doesn't show up and then see if the ones who do show up, who you thought were conservative, you thought would be assholes might not come around at your wedding. Hi, Dan. I am a 32 year old trans male. I was transitioned about five years ago and Um, About two years ago, I met my wife, and we started a relationship, and it was great and beautiful, and I love her. And in the beginning, we learned about, like, what each other likes and what we don't like. And I think in the beginning, I was very open to kind of bending my own expectations because it was new, and I loved her, and or, you know, I liked her, and I wanted to get to the point where we were together and loved each other and had sex. And so one of the things that she had expressed to me that was that she doesn't like penetration, like from a like a dildo or strap-on. And when I transitioned, went through this whole, like, discovering myself and trying to identify who I was, you know, process of, like, I went to Babeland and I, like, picked out the perfect dick and I, like... It was like my my skin tone. It felt right. I, I put it down, you know, in my crotch area. And I was like, yeah, that looks like my dick. And I just, it became a part of my transition. Like I think about it as, as though that's my, my dick. And so in the beginning, I kind of was like, well, that's fine. Or maybe, you know, maybe we can work up to it or whatever. I don't know that I said that, but I just kind of was like, okay, that's fine. You know, we can do other things. But now we've been married for two years and... I was cleaning our room the other day and I found it (laughs) in this box that we keep all our sex toys in. And I kind of had this moment of like, oh no, this was, this was a part of who I am and she doesn't like it. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or advice about that, because I have thought about talking to her about it and I, but I don't want to ever be somebody who makes her feel like she has to do something she's uncomfortable with or make her feel like she doesn't have a choice. I guess I'm just curious if you think for me to want that so much, even though it's not attached to my body, is kind of dick move of me (laughs) or if I should try and find a way to get her to understand. Um, But even just saying that makes me feel like I'm manipulating her into doing it my way and i just don't want to do that all right so i'm assuming that um the caller is monogamous so you know we'll just go with that (laughs) already um you know you've been married for two years the first thing i was thinking is um maybe just sit down and have a conversation with her you know just ask her and if 
yeah, if she, if she says no, then that's the end of the conversation. Um, but there were a couple of things that um, I was a little, con- you know, kind of concerned me that you said, like, this dick is a part of you. And I'm assuming because this is a dick that you penetrate with, that this is a, you know, an erect dick. Most cis men walk around with a dick that's not erect all the time. Um, and they don't only use it for penetration and that's a part of them. So to me, I was kind of concerned, like, why is using this dick for sex? What is a part of you? Um, and for penetration specifically, does that make sense? However, you could wear this dick around. This dick is a part of you and you can do other things with it. You can, you know, put it against your body and jack off with it. That feels awesome. That is your dick and it feels good to you. Um, you can ask your wife if she's willing to give you hand jobs, blow jobs, or even just wear it while you're having um, the sex that you're having with her right now. Because if all you're thinking about, the only thing that would be good for you is PIV sex, that sounds pretty boring to me. Limiting. Speaking of someone who wears his dick all the time, and sometimes it's hard, you know, it's not all penetration that you can do with a dick. Right. You know, and I've been with... Um, men who i'm sorry cis men who uh we have sex and there is no penetration so mm-hmm. you know and that was just as fulfilling as sex that, that there is so i, I just think that's not, you made me to kind of re-examine of like what this being what the caller thinks that this being a part of him really means as well but i can i, I can certainly understand why performing the active role during penetrative sex might be important to an individual trans man's identity and Hmm. sense of himself as a man. Uh, And so, you know, in the conversation that you suggest, and and I concur, I I back up your suggestion that that he have with his wife, that there may need to be, even if there can't be PIV, penetrative sex, in the context of this relationship, because your wife doesn't enjoy penetrative sex, and you knew that when you married her, can there at least be an acknowledgement and maybe that would help an acknowledgement that this is something that you've sacrificed to be with her and you're allowed to grieve for that. Yeah. You're allowed to have a feeling about that and feel a sense of loss and not have to pretend that you don't feel a sense of loss while acknowledging in your conversation with her that your sense of loss and your need to grieve this isn't pressure. You're not asking her to do it. If it's something that she Mm -hmm. doesn't enjoy and cannot do, but still you have to acknowledge and she would have to acknowledge and honor that you have made this sacrifice for her to be with her. And I like your advice, Jens, that they that they find other ways to incorporate this dick, that it doesn't just have to live in the drawer eternally if it can't be used for penetrative sex, that there are other ways to 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 wear it, to use it, uh, to have it during erotic, you know, intense sexual experiences without anybody being impaled on it. Right. That it can be incorporated. And therefore, you know, a part of your sexual expression without your wife having to agree to have a kind of sex that she doesn't enjoy and that you knew that she didn't enjoy when you married her. You know, and I also don't mean to, like, give advice to st- stuff that he's already thought about. But, you know, there are um, really nice packers out there, too, that. Um, Explain what packers just... are, because I'm sure a lot of people. Oh, I'm know sorry. You know, uh, you <laughs> I, I guess. um to put it simply, a packer is kind of um, something that you put in your pants to create a bulge. It can be anything from a sock to like a realistic, you know, movie um, grade prosthetic of a dick. When people say packers, it's understood to mean a, a non-erect penis. A non-erect a penis, thank you. A strap-on flaccid cock, basically. Right. Or just a 
tuck in flaccid cock right into your underwear. Um, and maybe, maybe you can find a packer that um, feels just a part of your body as the erect dick does to maybe um, help some of that grieving process. Jen's Chinquamani, trans, queer, and here to tell you how you live your life, which used to be my job. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. I have a boyfriend that is kinky as well, and he's into a bit of that gory graphic kind of stuff, which I don't have a problem with at all. So he has a blood kink. Um, cutting, needle play, all that stuff. And I actually get up to that as well. So that's not the problem. Um, problem is, I bet you know about a thing called Snuff Born. And I found out that he used to watch that. And I think he currently carries on doing that. And I have an ethical problem as well with that. My question is, do you think that I have the right to deny him or to tell him that I don't think it's okay to watch that because it's, well, it's not really ethical to support that kind of stuff with money, is it? Yeah, do I have the right to deny him watching that or is he just, or would that be king shaming him, him somehow? I don't want to revive the snuff film or snuff porn urban legend by taking your call, but I took your call. So to avoid reviving the snuff film urban legend, I'm just going to read from Snopes.com, the fact-checking websites listing on snuff films and snuff porn. Claim, films are routinely made for entertainment purposes in which participants are murdered on camera. Status, false. All fretting about it aside, not so much as one snuff film has been found Time and again, what is originally decried in the press as a film of a murder turns out, upon further investigation, to be a fake. Police on three continents routinely investigate films brought to them, and so far this has always been their verdict. No snuff films, some clever fakes, yes, but no real. Which is not to say that you can't find videos online of people dying. There were those horrible Faces of Death VHS cassettes that circulated Legally, in the 80s and 90s, you can go on YouTube and see murder and mayhem news reports. You can call up 9-11 videos and watch people fall to their deaths. There's lots of people dying on video. There just isn't, so far as anyone's been able to determine, a market for snuff pornography or snuff films being produced for a snuff porn consumer base. Just isn't happening, but... People like to talk about it or speculate about it. And there are probably people out there who've jacked off to old faces of death video cassettes. That doesn't mean those were produced as snuff porn for snuff porn consumers. All right. To your question, your boyfriend who is watching what you describe as snuff porn, if it's a video, it's a fake. If it's animation, if it's manga, it's a depiction it's a drawing. We watch in entertainment all the time. People murdered. We go to see films where basically everybody on the planet dies in some films. And we call that entertainment. Add a boner, add ejaculation, and suddenly it's a moral outrage. And I do think that it's a problem. If somebody else's demise, if the thought of murder arouses you, I think that's something you need to talk about with a shrink 
And it is something that you need to be concerned about and take responsibility for. I don't think it's necessarily something you should be shamed for. As we've discussed a hundred thousand times, people don't pick their kinks. Our kinks pick us and it is random. It's almost like they're randomly assigned some stimuli in the environment that we're exposed to pre-puberty. Our brain latches onto it. It gets funneled into our erotic imagination and it is locked into place and there is nothing we can do about it. It is not a conscious choice. There's nothing we can do about having the kink. We can do all sorts of things about ethically and responsibly expressing or fulfilling or acting on that kink. Now, there's some kinks, there's some desires that can never be acted on morally or ethically, except through fantasy and or role play. And slavery, owning people, ravishment or rape fantasies, snuff fantasies count as the shit that can only be acted on through fantasy and or role play. It can never be experienced ethically in reality. All right, so your boyfriend is watching something that is packaged or presented to him or that he's suggested to you is snuff porn. What do you do about that? Well, if there is some sort of secret snuff porn marketplace out there, his watching snuff porn creates more demand for snuff porn, which then results in people being murdered on film to satisfy the consumers in that snuff porn marketplace. But again, those films the best of our knowledge, do not actually exist, which means your boyfriend is not a consumer creating demand, which then is met with fresh supply. Hopefully what you mean is your boyfriend is watching animation or your boyfriend is watching manga or your boyfriend is watching old faces of death video cassettes. And what can you do about that? Well, you can tell him you'd rather he didn't. You can tell him it makes you, as his sex partner, incredibly uncomfortable to know that he fantasizes about murdering people. You can also tell him you're out. Some people's desires, some people's fantasies, even if they shouldn't be shamed for them, even if they didn't make a conscious choice to cultivate them, are libido killers in their partners. And there's nothing kink-shaming about saying to someone who you are erotically, the things that turn you on, they turn me off. It's not just that I don't share your kink. There's a, something about your kink that for me is, in Emily Ophie's phrase, a libido killer. It's a kind of boundary that we are allowed to set for ourselves, who we want to let in, who we want to be in bed with. And if you think your boyfriend, while you two are having sex, is fantasizing about murdering you or murdering someone, that might Make it impossible for you to feel safe, secure, comfortable in that vulnerable position. And you're allowed to tap out. Circling back to the whole snuff film, snuff porn, does it exist, does it not exist? Snopes, and I trust Snopes, says doesn't exist. Does your boyfriend think it exists? Does he think he's watching actual depictions of actual murders produced for his sexual pleasure? Then there's something terribly wrong with him and you should go if he thinks he's creating demand that is resulting in this supply even if he isn't he's morally bankrupt morally outrageous not in good working order and someone that you should get the fuck away from hi dan i'm a 25 year old cisgendered heteroflexible white male I'm actually calling because uh, I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine, and I'm not sure how to process his thoughts and opinions on the subject. 
uh, we were talking and kind of having debate around incest, him being a strong advocate for it, um, and me being uh, a strong advocate against incest, especially when power dynamics are involved, which I think it's impossible to not have power dynamics involved. Separate conversation. What's going on here, though, is I kind of pressed him on it. We've had this discussion for six months to a year. He's my age again, 25-year-old, straight, white male. And I asked him where this came from. And he, after some pressing, he finally told me that he has feelings for his 16-year-old cousin that he's about nine years older than, which was not too shocking. I understand that, especially with kind of post-pubescent teenagers, some men might find them attractive. What was a little shocking to me, though, was that he said that he's had these feelings for the past, like, 10 years or so, and that he noticed when he was in his teens and she was about six or seven, that she, as well as other young children, would like pay extra attention to him. And oftentimes that extra attention to him, um, he, he took it and interpreted that extra attention from a younger age, around 15, 16 or so, as sexual attention. And then he's felt this way from both his uh, you know, younger cousin when she was six and then he was 15, and that he's also noticed this, that oftentimes now in his mid-20s, younger children often have more sexual or more attraction to him than other adults, and, and he describes it as, uh, interprets it as sexual attraction. I was very shocked when I heard this. I personally don't think m- most men and women define attention from children as sexual in its nature. Um, what was somewhat reassuring is he, again, reiterated that he would never act on any of these feelings and that he he doesn't truly believe that children are sexually attracted to him, but at the same time, he described kind of this attention as, as sexual in nature. So I guess I'm kind of at a loss here about what to do. I kind of just made sure that he wasn't going to act and kind of sexually uh, make advances or any type of advances on, on children, but it was somewhat alarming to hear that he views children's attention to him as sexual in nature. So I guess I'm just kind of hoping for a very quick and easy answer of, hey, you're in your own head about this. This is a weird thing. Sex is weird. Um, But if not, I was hoping maybe you could kind of talk through if there are any steps at all that I should take or just kind of be like, ah, this is a little yicky, and I kind of avoid him in this instance. We are social animals, and we need human contact, and we need physical contact to be sane, to be healthy, and children need that kind of physical contact as well, and they will seek it out, and they don't always or exclusively seek out that kind of physical contact from their parents or or their siblings, and I'm talking about non-sensual, non-erotic physical contact, just closeness, just touch, a kind of intimacy. Children will sometimes seek that out from more distant relatives, from, say, cousins or from family friends. And most adults, adults who are not sexually attracted to children, correctly interpret that kind of physical contact from a child as non-sexual. It can be intimate. It can be sensuous. Anybody who's ever been a parent knows that there's a sensuality to your infant or toddler's weight to their skin against your skin when you're holding them, when you're nursing them. But an adult who isn't a pedophile doesn't engage in the kind of dickful thinking that your friend is engaging in, where he is interpreting the actions, the normal and natural actions, including the 
physical affection-seeking actions of a child as sexual or erotic. And so what your friend is, is a pedophile. Your friend is not, as of yet, a monster. So far as you know, he's told you that he realizes that he could never act on this. What he needs to do, though, is get his ass into therapy and have someone help him understand in his bones, all of them, that he is misinterpreting, self-servingly so, the actions, the innocent, non-sexual actions of children and framing them as erotic, as sensual as an expression of sexual desire because he feels sexual desire for children and he's engaged in the kind of shitty and dangerous rationalizations that some pedophiles engage in where they tell themselves, okay, I can never act on this because it's illegal. I can never act on this because I don't want to destroy my life. But there are certainly children out there who might like me to act on these feelings, who share and reciprocate these sorts of feelings. And that is not True. That is a lie that pedophiles in the absence of good therapy and good interventions, which are difficult for many pedophiles to get because they can be reported if they ask for help, will tell themselves and endanger themselves by telling themselves those stories. So you need to say to your friend, nobody chooses to be a pedophile. The best and most current research shows that this is akin to adjacent to the same chunks of the brain are engaged here, that this is like a sexual orientation and like a sexual orientation, it is not a conscious or active choice. For a pedophile, however, it is a burden and it is a lifelong burden and it is a curse because it is not a sexual desire that can ever be acted on. It is not a sexual desire that can ever be consummated. And there is a distinction to be made between pedophiles and child molesters. We don't have great data on who is and isn't a pedophile. So it's difficult to say what percentage of pedophiles act on their desires. But it's safe to say that many, if not most, pedophiles never act on their desires. They never offend. They never cross that line and molest or rape a child. And not all people who've molested children are pedophiles, as bizarre as that sounds to say. And your friend needs to get it through his head that when he looks at the innocent if physical affection-seeking actions of children and interprets those actions as erotic, as a pass being made at him, that that is his dick telling him what his dick wants the rest of him to believe. And he cannot, because he is a pedophile, because he has this burden, this curse, he can never trust his dick. Ever. The temptation when a friend confides in you in the way that your friend has confided in you is to, is to run, is to condemn them, tell them they're monsters and bold. One thing that the data shows that contributes to a pedophile offending, however, is isolation and desperation. So by abandoning your friend who's confided these things in you, you are leaving your friend in a position where he is likelier to offend. He is likelier to molest, rape a child. And so you need to step up and you need to hold him accountable. You need to stay by his side in order to protect children. But you need to make your friendship and your staying by his side conditioned upon him getting the help that he needs. If he lives in the United States, if he has access to children as a part of his job, if he's a teacher, if he's a preacher, and he seeks help, he may be reported. There are mandatory reporting laws when 
People who are attracted to children seek the help that they need so that they don't offend. Perversely, in the United States, they may be reported. And so that results in many people who would be less likely to offend if they got help, results in them not getting help. If he's not in a position where he has access to children, if he's not a parent or a step-parent or a preacher or a teacher, it's safer for him to go get help, to go seek therapy. And you should importune him to do so. You should impress upon him that it's not just to protect all the children of the world that he needs to go get help, but to protect himself as well. Because the life of a pedophile who offended, the life of a pedophile who crossed that line and went from pedophile to child rapist is not a pleasant one. And his dick won't be there to tell him a new story then that makes it better. His dick won't be able to rationalize away the rest of his life in prison because he went from attracted to children to raping children because he went from pedophile to child molester. As for the incest conversations, which we didn't even talk about, oh my God, cousins can get married in 25 states. Cousins can get married in Europe and Canada, Australia to be attracted to a cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt married a cousin. Charles Darwin married a cousin. To be attracted to a cousin doesn't necessarily mean that you're talking about incest necessarily. It's closer than most people are comfortable with. Closer familial relationship than most people are comfortable eroticizing. But it's not a crime to be into your cousin. It is a red flag. It is a warning. It is a problem if you are attracted to a seven, eight, nine-year-old cousin who is now 16 And that you may have been grooming all of their life for the opportunity to act on that attraction after they reach the age of consent. That is a problem. That is something else your friend needs to discuss with a therapist. And considering the origins of your friend's attraction to his cousin, it's not an attraction that he can or should ever act on. Charles Darwin and Franklin Delano Roosevelt notwithstanding. Hi, I just started listening to your podcast after reading you online for a few years, and uh, what struck me was uh, this expression called dickful thinking. It was funny. I uh, had this girl come by. I happened to play the band, and this woman who was sort of friendly with came by, and I invited a bunch of people, but she was the only one who came out, and she took a bunch of pictures and shot some video, of which I'm very grateful for. Here's where that, I guess, possible thinking comes in. You know, she came by. She didn't tell me she was coming. She has a friend of hers, a guy, driver. and But then, you know, she also gave out, like, uh, her number to me to text, I guess. And uh, and then she also, you know, kind of was flirty with me all through the evening. But, you know, I was also paying attention to, like, her friend. And uh, I knew the guy kind of casually as a, as a musician. So the next day, after I got the pictures, I called her personally, left a voicemail to thank her. And then I also sent a quick text, you know, saying, thank you, appreciate the, the pictures and the video. And, you know, would you like to hang out, you know, next weekend? Because I didn't really quite know the status of that guy she was with. Although it didn't seem like they were just, it seemed like they were just friends because he wasn't paying for drinks. I bought her a drink to, to show appreciation in that moment. But it didn't seem like they were a boyfriend or girlfriend. So was it Dixon thinking to think that she really wants to go out with me because she took you know, she can sort of show up last minute and took a bunch of pictures, or or is it not? I mean, she did answer me and say, well, not next weekend, I'm not sure. I'd love to hang out with you sometime, but not next weekend. Uh, I got stuff going on with family. Very kind of 
casual, you know, soft rejection. I don't feel bad, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't know if I should just be cool and hang back for a few weeks or just not bother at all and just, you know, just let's see what happens. She could be into you and have a legitimate scheduling conflict, or she could be doing what a great many women do when they think a guy might be asking them out. They tell them that, oh yeah, I'd love to hang out sometime, but that time you specified I am unavailable. And if you specified another time, they might be unavailable for that time too. And you specify a third alternative time and they're not available then either. And what you've got on your hands is a woman who's been socialized not to give a man a direct no. And so she gives him a, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. I'd love to, but I can't. I'd love to, but I can't. And it's up to the guy to correctly interpret that as you did. As a no, you speculate as to whether her not being able to hang out with you on the weekend you suggested it might be nice to hang out as potentially a no. What you need to do to end the mystery here is just ask her out on a date. Don't ask her to hang out because that can mean something sexual or romantic or that can mean just we're buddies and we share an interest in live music and videography. Ask her out on a date. Risk rejection. Risk rejection, not just by asking her a direct and unambiguous question. Hey, would you like to go out on a date date sometime? I am interested in you. If you're interested in me in the same way, I would love to go out on a date with you. Then what you got to say, because you already suspect that she might be doing that thing that a lot of women do, not out of malice, but out of fear and terror in not saying no to you directly. You have to invite the no. You have to give her permission to say no to you like to go out on a date sometime. If the answer is no, if you're not interested in me in that way, just say no. And it'll be awkward next time we run into each other at a show, but I'll be decent and graceful about it and we'll power through the awkwardness and then we can be friends. But I'm kind of interested in you romantically and give me a yes or give me a no. And totally cool if it's a no. Say all that. Risk saying all that. And then what do you get? Well, you might get rejected, which is why people hesitate to put it that way. But if you do get rejected, then you won't have to waste any more time wondering about whether your dick is dickful thinking at you. And if you do get a no, you can move on. And if you get a yes, which is a possibility, you get a yes, Yahtzee. If you get an unambiguous yes, great. It's possible, unlikely, I got to say, but possible that she had a scheduling conflict on the one time that you threw out there that you might like to hang out. You could wait, could ball in her court it, tell yourself that she knows that you're interested and you'll hear from her when there might be a time that she wants to hang out. But why let yourself dangle? Ask the direct question. Tell the person you asked the direct question of that you can hear a no and not be a dick about it. And then you'll get a direct answer. Let's do the tweets. Rita Vita tweets, hashtag Savage Lovecast. Your response, Dan Savage, about the teeth, about the man with the rotting teeth, was hashtag classist and hashtag ableist. Don't propagate the idea that bad teeth indicate bad judgment. It can be the result of illness or genetic conditions and or a lack of decent dental coverage. Good points all. Thomas Carver tweets, at fake Dan Savage, hashtag Savage Lovecast. Yes, tell the truth about the dude's teeth. I had a boyfriend when I was in college who told me the truth about my personal flaws when he broke up with me. Heard at the time, but I am so grateful to him for being honest. Made me a better man. 
And finally, JHeartLA tweets, subscribe to the Magnum hashtag Savage Lovecast this week, mostly because I was tired of hearing about how much fake Dan Savage hates the post office, but really glad to hear a fascinating conversation with Johan Hari 1012. Thank you for subscribing to the Magnum, Joel. Thank you to all of our Magnum subscribers. We appreciate your support so much. And now, your response calls. Hi, this is a comment for the caller um, in the last episode who was feeling a little crazy because she had had total enamored with her boyfriend, madly in love, talking about their future all the time. And then she felt like when they finally did have sex, he pulled back a little bit. I just wanted to share my experience about this. I had a total madly in love, crazy honeymoon period with my boyfriend for the first two, three months. And then when it did kind of slow down, I had a similar freak out and was like, do you feel differently about me? Have things changed? Was that all a fantasy? And now real life is hitting and we don't have the same magical love that we once had or whatever. And he just was able to express to me, no, his feelings hadn't changed. If anything, they had deepened. But what had worn off was just that incessant need to express them. So um, it might be comforting for her to hear that, that maybe that's what's going on with her boyfriend, that he's expressed it. And then now that he's been with her for a little while, he feels more comfortable just sitting in the moment. And that panicky need to talk about marriage and the future and kids has kind of worn off. And now they're settling into just the reality of being in love and being together. Hi there. I'm calling in response to episode 645 and Dan's advice to the guy whose girlfriend seems to be a pillow princess, where, Dan, you really fell short in your advice um, is not mentioning the campsite rule. If this woman is really not responding physically, then she probably has some other stuff going on. I don't know if you, the caller, had talked with her about whether she's been a victim of sexual assault or not, as many women have, uh, but that could be a factor. And, you know, maybe she just you know, she's in a place where she's really commodifying her body um, and really not able to be present with you. So, yes, you should not date her, but also try and, you know, try and take some time and energy to support her in growing to be a more engaged sexual being. Hi, I was just calling about the guy with the bad teeth, um, the girl wanting to dump him. I would say, having been in a situation myself, like, I, I would say you should tell him, like, people want to know the real reason like having bad teeth is not having something that you can't change. You can change your teeth. It might be expensive, but you can change them. So saying, hey, I don't want to date you because their teeth are really bad and distracting. And I'm sorry, but that's how I feel is something that he can work on in the future for future relationships so that he can be happy with a nice person. Before we leave it there, I want to let you know we have some live shows coming up. Savage Love Live in Portland, Oregon on Friday, March 15th. And Savage Love Live in Vancouver, British Columbia at the Vancouver Playhouse on Saturday, March 23rd. We also have upcoming appearances in Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, Canada, and Somerville, Massachusetts. And Stormy Daniels will be joining us at the San Francisco Live Show on June 7th. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events. For tickets, And if you're in the ticket buying mood, also swing by humpfilmfest.com and get tickets for the Hump Tour. Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, is coming to a theater near you soon. Go to humpfilmfest.com for locations and times. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064. 
That's the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz at 206-302-2064. And a word about your comments. We get so many more calls with comments than we can possibly play on the show. But we listen to each and every one of them, and we really appreciate all of your feedback. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Hump on Twitter at HumpFilmFest. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.